the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Innovators Network. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation. 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org. In partnership with Cardiovascular System Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is going to be a, a very powerful show. I have very strong opinions, and I'm going to start out with just a little bit of a rant to set up the conversation that we are going to be having throughout the next hour. You know, the hypocrisy when it comes to handling healthcare disparities, I think is just astounding. We see it across the media daily from federal lawmakers speaking out about helping the most vulnerable communities across the United States. And yet when it comes to putting their money where their mouth is, they fall short each year. The powers that be update the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, or PFS, looking at how much each physician is reimbursed for their services. And they determine whether to allocate more money to certain areas, less to others. Due to a required budget neutrality by law, for one to receive an increase in allocation, other areas must see a decrease in reimbursement for services. Robbing Peter to pay Paul has worked in the past with cuts evenly spread across all practices, but really not now and not at the expense of patients, their limbs and eventually their lives. Some of the hardest hit with this year's reimbursement cuts are those who are considered limb savers. These vascular surgeons, interventional cardiologists and interventional radiologists are the so-called plumbers of the human body. And it's their amputation prevention services that are taking the hit, particularly in community-based clinics known as office-based labs or OBLs. Now, these OBLs are independent outpatient facilities that treat patients with chronic ailments such as end-stage renal disease, venous disease, as well as diagnose and treat one of the most debilitating diseases most have never even heard of, yet impacts one in five over age 60. The disease known as peripheral artery disease, PAD, which is a circulation issue that impacts mainly the leg arteries and can lead to amputation. High amputation rates in minority communities are attributed to geographic and socioeconomic disparities. OBLs 
infiltrate these communities to reach the most at-risk patients where they are, breaking down many of those barriers to timely diagnosis and timely effective treatment. This helps patients live a better quality of life and become less of a financial burden on our healthcare system. But this care is in jeopardy, and that's what we're going to be discussing on this show, along with vascular surgeons, Dr. Paul Gagne and Daniel Nathanson, both with the Cardiovascular Coalition, helping to fight for the rights of these doctors in OBLs. So with that said, whoo, off my soapbox. <laughs> John, what do you think? Is it time for a moment of of inspiration before we go well, into this heated discussion? No, I, well, I, I just have to say, and this actually dovetails into uh, my moment of inspiration, um, but you really pulled the, the pin out of that grenade. Uh, so th this should be an interesting conversation because, um, you know, I, I don't know, and at least where I practice, we, and it's a hospital-based system and we don't have an OBL, uh, you know, we try to provide and I think do a pretty good job of providing care to everyone in our community. Yes, there are disparities w within distribution of care. Uh, I'd be interested. I will have to explore what you said further. I, I'm, I'd be curious to know how the, the OBLs are, are helping that. So this will be this will be a good conversation. But man, <laughs> this will, you know, I next time we do, we, we, we need to get some, you know, legislator or someone who um, is involved in, in some of these uh, decision makings on the Hill uh, with respect to reimbursement. So at any rate, looking forward to this one. This, this will be a good one. You know, we, we don't shy away from from controversy, do we? We, we address those tough topics head on. <laughs> well, right. Never let a good crisis go to waste, right? <clears throat> no. So before we get into this whole debate, let's have a moment of inspiration. Dr. John Phillips, spectacular vascular moment of inspiration. Well, so again, the dovetail of pulling the grenade as to what I said, uh, June 6, 1944, D-Day. So we just celebrated that a couple days ago. I think that's what, 79 years. I was looking for a quote um, just to kind of uh, speak to, to the nature of the individuals who uh, at least were from the Allied troops who, who kind of landed on Normandy. And I think we lost about 4,500 soldiers or so. And obviously you can get uh, quotes from Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Churchill and things in that nature. But I, I found this one from private first class Joe Lezwinski, uh, who, you know, again, just a literally a soldier on, on, on the beach. And he said, quote, I don't feel that I'm any kind of hero. To me, the work had to be done. I was asked to do it. So I did it. When I lecture kids, that is what I tell them. And. You know, again, let's talk about the PAD work that we do here. There's work that needs to be done. It's going to it's getting done at other places, whether it's in a hospital or an office based lab or an ambulatory surgical center. And I'm really excited to hear from our physicians uh, who are on the on the show with us to kind of get their opinion and understanding of of, of the process. So with, without any further ado, let's let's jump into this. I do think that, you know, anyone that is involved in in treating peripheral artery disease is truly a hero. There are so many people on the front lines, whether it's someone in the front office answering the phones, whether it's, you know, a nurse practitioner or even a chief of marketing officer. I last night had a patient that was told by a, a one hospital 
after a CT angiogram, never had any sort of endovascular procedure with wires and balloons or anything before. He wants to do, this is frontline treatment at this hospital. In the middle of Ohio, I almost sent her to you, still may, aorto, aorto bypass, just on one leg, femoral bypass, wants to do a fem-fem and a fem-pop all in one big procedure. So well, I call up this marketing person and I say, oh my gosh, you have an office-based lab that's right nearby there. They're opening up next week. Help me. And she gets on the phone with the doctor. The doctor calls me at 6.30 at night last night and was like, I just looked at the CT angiogram. Uh, we can do this with wires and balloons. This is no problem. Again, um, and and more than one way to, quote, skin the cat. Surgery is always, a, a, so, you know, I sent two patients to surgery this week after I did the angiogram. But to our point, we always stress this to the patients that are listening Get a second opinion, get a third opinion, make sure you're comfortable with the game plan. Uh, You know, physicians aren't necessarily, in my opinion, out there to just cut on people for the sake of, you know, doing a, doing an operation. But you're right. I will have to talk offline because I want to see where you sent this patient to in my neck of the woods. Yeah, you never know. They could be coming your way. You know, I don't care where the doctor is, what facility they're in. I'm just looking for the best, most effective, timely care for the patient. That is right for them, which also depends on insurance, depends on their comorbidities, comorbidities, a lot to consider. But it was really one of those situations where it proves it is important for patients to have options. And that's what we're going to start discussing with Dr. Daniel Nathanson and Dr. Paul Cagney coming up right after the break. So stay with us. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 atherectomy system, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today we are talking about Medicare cuts for physicians and the impact it might have on options for patients with one of the most debilitating diseases most have never heard of, yet impacts one in five over age 60, one in three diabetics over age 50, and three in five people who suffer a heart attack have plaque buildup in their legs known as peripheral artery disease or PAD. We have with us vascular surgeons, Dr. Paul Gagney and Dr. Daniel Nathanson, Uh They're with the Cardiovascular Coalition. They're trying to educate legislators on these cuts and why they should roll them back. 
Um, but we want to find out because first off with with Paul and and Daniel, you both were it's not affecting the hospitals. It's affecting these independent office based labs. And you used to be working full time in the hospitals, but now you have your own independent labs. So I want to talk about what your experience was in the hospital and why you decided to shift to treating in an independent lab and how that has become a catalyst for fighting for more options for patients. Why don't we start with Daniel? Uh, yes, my name is Daniel Nathanson, and I um, have an office-based lab in San Francisco. We've been there since 2015, so it's been almost eight years. And I worked in uh, the largest private hospital in San Francisco for many years. And what I found was that if you had a stroke or heart attack, this was the best place to be. But for 90% of my patients, they need outpatient, minimally invasive procedures to address their underlying chronic issues that includes uh, peripheral arterial disease and dialysis access intervention for patients who have dialysis. And this was, from a patient's perspective, much better done in a small outpatient environment where everybody is geared towards the care of that patient. And the response from the communities and uh, the community in San Francisco, our patients have been unanimous uh, and 100% positive. It's been an amazing experience for our patients. We're able to get them in much more quickly, much more effectively, and out the door, and they have their problems treated. Whereas in the hospital, they would often get lost uh, in the shuffle. Uh, there'd be other priorities, very sick patients with acute problems, but now the experience has been much better for our patients. And I think COVID shed light on the value of the office-based lab and the limitations of a hospital in treating some of these patients with peripheral artery disease, venous disease, and who need that dialysis access. There wasn't that timely care for them. For them, you know, a lot of the, they were prioritizing the COVID patients, of course. I mean, why wouldn't they? But we had a patient, for example, and just an example of literally hundreds that we helped during COVID to go from the hospital to an office-based lab simply because these hospitals at the time with a pandemic were overrun, you know, by, and, and they were overburdened by people with a very contagious um, you know, bacteria. So it, it was, it was really scary. So we had one patient in particular, they were, they said, Hey, we, if we got you in today, we could literally treat you, but we can't get you in. We have no room. We can't even get in the, in the, in the lab. So come back in a few weeks when we slow down and we'll just amputate it. We were able to get them to an office based lab and actually get them treated right away and saved their limb. Yeah, and Daniel, obviously, you bring up a, a fantastic point about the value of an office-based lab or OBL or an ambulatory surgical center, ASC, the nim very nimble and you can get patients in quickly. I mean, they're very efficient. Um, but, but Paul, let me ask you this question because you have an office-based lab as well. I, I believe Medicare and the insurance companies save money by sending their patients to these facilities as opposed to the hospital due to just how the technical fees and, and you know, the overhead right. at the hospital versus the ASC OBL. Is that, is that true? Yes. Uh, the problem is that we have this flexibility. 
we have complete control of that schedule, those resources. And as uh, Daniel pointed out, you know, in the in the hospital, sometimes we're standing in line behind, behind patients that are sicker. And although the patients that we're taking care of with gangrene or non-healing wounds at risk for amputation uh, may be at risk of losing a leg, they're not imminently at risk of losing a life. So they get lower on the pecking order. And uh, sometimes their condition deteriorates while they're waiting to get that. We have that flexibility. But is there not, isn't there a a Medicare and the insurance companies save some money by sending patients to these facilities as opposed to the hospital, correct? Yeah. The reimbursement uh, to the facilities and hospital, excuse me, to the facilities and doctors and the OBL, maybe a third of what it is to, to the hospital. And so the taxpayer and Medicare are saving money uh, using these facilities and for, for the exact same service the patient would get at the hospital. And, you know, what's interesting to me is even though it does save them money, they still prioritize emergency care. If a patient goes through emergency for in need of revascularization or restoring of that blood flow in the legs, they're quicker to move forward and approve that in an emergency versus in an office-based lab. Our experience is sometimes it takes one, two weeks to get approval, if at all, which just seems like it, it, we had one patient in Georgia who went to the emergency room. At 10 o'clock at night, we got the call. They were going to cut off her leg first thing in the morning. And she was courageous enough to say, no, I have another option. We got her to another doctor at an office-based lab over in Atlanta. And he was able to go in with a quick balloon and and a wire and save her leg. No problem. It took 25 minutes. I mean, I, yes, I, would, hope, I would hope that that's an outlier. Uh, it's not. Uh, but, but, um, I wish it was. You know, again, I, I think as we mentioned the efficiency and the ability to get people in the same day, I think it makes it very attractive to the patients as well as the, the referring physicians to look to physicians who can do endovascular work in an, in an OBL versus the hospital. And Daniel, I see you, you nodding your head. I mean, would you like to share your insight? Yeah. So not only are the patients better served, but it's an excellent point. We are saving taxpayers and Medicare a third of the cost. And so the patients, uh, it's a better experience for the patients. It's more effective. It's more impactful. And on top of that, we are uh, are saving the system and the taxpayers money. And what we found in San Francisco, especially where our costs are very high, we've had 30 to 40% OBL reimbursement cut. It goes year after year after year, and we're not going to be able to sustain it much longer. And it's going to be a real problem for our community in San Francisco if our center closes down because we are the only one. And I won't be able really to practice in the hospital at this point the way I'm able to. I won't be able to serve my patients. And that's where I'm going to have to go if these cuts continue. Well, coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to talk more and get into the heart of these cuts and the impact they're going to have. So stay with us. Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking. Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me. Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age. Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal. 
Yeah, it turns out we all have peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg, but that does not have to happen to you. No, it does not because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough. PAD peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are the way to my heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients, and we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our LegSaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your life Life and limb could depend on it. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. This is a, a short segment, so it's likely the conversation is likely going to spill over to the next. But before we went to break, we were just beginning to hit the tip of the iceberg, I think, with respect to the cuts that are going to be seen in the office space labs and presumably the ambulatory surgical centers. So, uh, Daniel, I'll start with you. Tell us what exactly, you know, what does this mean for a, a, a small business owner such as yourself, right? Well, yes, that's exactly right. Um, we are act as small business owners. Um, it's our responsibility to balance the the needs of uh, our community uh, with the needs of our office. We um, reimburse all of our employees just like any other um, small business. We have to make sure that their retirements and benefits and everything else. And on top of that, we have to make sure that everybody is focused in a team-oriented fashion on the patient. And because of that, um, it's been a very successful model. Uh, on the other hand, if we continue to have to endure these cuts, the model will no longer function because we're getting a thinner and thinner margin and eventually we'll just start to lose money and we're not that far away from that with all of these cuts. Well, yes. I mean, not only the cuts at the same time, 8% what in, in inflation. So you're barely a break even. And that's leading to a lot of consolidation in the office-based setting, right, Paul? And what, what is the impact of that on patients and, and potential um, choice when it comes to that? So when you have consolidation, then the natural next step is let's cut out uh, access in areas that are not doing as well. There's not as many, not as much of a profit or there's not as much that the balance sheet is challenged more. And, and as a result, sites of care get closed down uh, and, and patients have to travel longer distance and have bigger barriers to overcome to get the care they need. So consolidation is also and tends to drive up the, the care of co- the cost of care in those areas. So it really defeats the uh, purpose right. of these office-based labs, right, which are the ones that are infiltrating these most vulnerable communities and trying to democratize care to some of the minorities, African-Americans, Hispanics, Indians, who have the highest risk of amputation. Yes, right. And and then I, let me just real quick, I think we have like two minutes left and we'll probably just, I'd like to discuss this at the next segment, but it, it, if if there's pressure to 
it'll be sustainable and the margins keep getting thinner. We all know that. And for the listeners, certain procedures pay more than others. Right. And so do you guys fear that, um, certain procedures might be, might be, uh, or, well, I guess are currently being done more so in patients that may or may not benefit them from them to generate a higher, um, code, uh, for reimbursement, uh, or would that, is that a potential issue moving forward? Or is that just me talking crazy? And actually, I'm going to have you hold that thought because that's a really important question and it needs some time because I am wondering if that's why these office-based labs do have a target on their back, a few bad seeds being responsible for taking advantage of some decisions Medicare made 15 years ago. So stay with us. You don't want to miss this discussion. Medical Notepad brought to you by Cardiovascular Systems Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation, and The Weight of My Heart. My name is Anaita Dua. I am a vascular surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, an associate professor of surgery. And this is this week's Medical Notepad. So let's talk about the big question. When you have advanced critical limb ischemia, you're sitting with your doctor and they're giving you options in terms of getting blood flow to that leg, whether or not you should go the endovascular route, the stents, the wires, the catheters, or you should go the bypass route, which is the open surgery. Now, this is a bit of a loaded question because those days of or are out the window. It's all about and. Endovascular therapy and open surgery are two tools that are in our toolkit to get you blood flow down to your leg. Every patient is different and has a different need. When you go to the store, right? Let's say you go to Home Depot and you need to fix your windowsill, it's broken. You don't say, hey, I want a wrench. I want a wrench every time, right? That would be stupid because it depends on what's wrong with your window. Do you have a, I'm not not great at fixing windows, but (laughs) if you have something that needs a wrench, you need the wrench at that time. But maybe this time you need a screwdriver. Maybe this time you need a measuring tape. You, as the person who's fixing the window, are the one that's coming in there with the knowledge about what you need. And a lot of times, guess what? You need all three things in order to optimize the situation. Are you trying to get a temporary fix because there's a storm coming and you just want to get sure that window in place today and whatever needs to happen today so that the window doesn't blow off during the storm? Or are you trying to fix your window so that you can sell your house and this thing's going to be durable for the next 20 years? That is important. So the same way as when a patient walks in, the patient is that windowsill that needs some type of fixing. I, as the vascular surgeon, say, what do I need for this person? If it's a very elderly patient who's in a nursing home, who's got a horrible wound that's hurting them and that's going to get infected and kill them. I need to get something done quickly without going down a path where they're going to have more difficulty healing. So a bypass in a person like that may not be ideal because they might not be able to survive a bypass. And I'm not trying to get your leg fixed. I'm trying to get you fixed and get you back to what you want to be able to do. So in a patient like that, I may offer endovascular advanced therapy knowing that even though I'm going up the foot and down the leg and going to do all this fancy stuff, that procedure that I'm doing may not be very durable. It may last the patient maybe six months to a year, but that might be good enough to get that wound healed up. 
So I don't need to do a big surgery that, you know, I'm trying to get five years out of because this patient's life expectancy may only be a couple of years. So I just want to give them the best quality of life and get them to a point where they're going to get this wound healed. Now, if I'm facing a 62-year-old man who has critical limb ischemia, who's a smoker, who, you know, has bad diabetes, this is somebody who's only 62. And what my goal is is to try to push off any question of an amputation out of their life. So I might offer something like a hybrid procedure to somebody like that, where I go and take out plaque surgically from the patient's groined area so that I now have a portal into their body for the next 100 procedures I may be doing on them. But I might do the leg aspect of it endovascularly. So hybrid, I use both. And eventually, down the line, maybe when they're 70, maybe when they're 80, after I've done a number of endovascular procedures and at this point there's no further endo I can offer them, I would say, hey, let's do a bypass. Let's get you the next 10 years now with a nice bypass. Use that vein and do a great job. Now, I don't want to burn bridges. And I'll tell you, as a vascular surgeon nowadays, I'm seeing patients that have had bypasses that were done 10 years ago that I'm now able to do an endovascular recanalization of their main artery. But that's not a, not a dig on the vascular surgeons from 10, 20 years ago because they didn't have the tools back then. They were, endovascular was just starting out. So as technology advances, maybe someday, 10 years from now, we're going to have a, a, a med that someone can take and just dissolve all the calcium and put us all out of business. We don't know. So the way I would put this is, it's not about this is the answer. Think of that windowsill. You as the patient need to be sitting across from somebody who's an expert and who cares. You have these two things. That person will sit across from you and will think about what you need in order for you to get, and, they, and then explain it to you. Hey, you know what? A bypass would last a really long time, but you just got over COVID. Your lungs aren't great. I don't want to put you through a big procedure, and I don't want to harvest vein on you, but at the same time, we need to do something right now because your toe is coming off your body. Why don't we do this, and this is why? And when, when this fails, a year from now, two years from now, I'm ready. This is the next step. This is your plan as we move through. And you as the patient, optimize your diabetic control, optimize your nutrition, take your blood thinners so that we can push off the advancement of your atherosclerotic disease so that maybe I never have to do a bypass on you. And so that's the way in which I approach patients and the way in which all patients and, and, you know, move away from the quick fix, move away from the from the 10 second answer. This is a conversation. When you go to Home Depot, you have a conversation. How can you not have a conversation about something as important as your leg? And that was the advice I would give as this week's medical notepad. Remember, the advice and views offered during this series are for informational and educational purposes only. Always ask your own healthcare provider for explicit consent before acting on any information provided here. If you want more information on peripheral artery disease, go to standagainstamputation.com. And for real-time support, go to thewaytomyheart.org. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. So before we went to the break, I, I guess I pulled another pin on a grenade with respect to 
disparaging uh, treatment in OBLs, ASCs versus the hospital based on differences in reimbursement. Um, and just, again, for the listeners, there are certain procedures that we do that don't cost a lot of money. There are other procedures that we do that do cost more money and the reimbursement is higher. And, uh, you know, if, again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if I get paid $300 to do something and then I get paid $2,000 to do something similar to that, Sometimes we might be leaning towards doing the $2,000 thing. And then particularly with potential cuts to the reimbursement, the question that I posed to doc, doctors, uh, Daniel and, and Paul was, do you think that people are going to, in the OBLASC space, are going to start doing more of the $2,000 procedure when they can get away with the 300 Yeah, I think the uh, the problem uh, around this that question, uh, John, is, the data around these procedures is not clear. I think that when you start looking at the data, uh, you'll follow it. And I think in some instances, it's clear you need to just do the less expensive procedure. Uh, in other circumstances, based on what data is available, the physician's experience, they may migrate to the more expensive procedure. Daniel? Yeah, I think, you know, by and large, um, th- there is a... Um, issue there of reimbursement. I think that almost all doctors are going to do the appropriate um, procedure for the patients that they have in front of them and will not try to reverse engineer the system to get maximal compensation. But uh, unfortunately, the way the system has been set up, uh, there are a, a few, a very small number of people, but there are a few who uh, are uh, looking at that uh, issue, the reimbursement uh, part of the equation, a little bit too closely. It's interesting because I think that there are always going to be bad seeds wherever they are. And right now, the target is on your back because 15 years ago, there were some incentives put into place by CMS, you know, for the treatment or advanced treatment of people with peripheral artery disease. And there was some data that came out that showed that only 90 doctors were responsible for a third of all payments made between 2017 and 2021. And on top of that, despite those treatments, amputation rates continue to rise. And and that doesn't really, you know, bode well. As you said, those few bad seeds can certainly put that target on your back. However, by the same token, there are bad seeds within hospitals as well. Who is looking at the amputation rates and taking a second look to ensure that those amputations were in fact necessary or were they premature? Could something else have been done with limb salvage to save those folks' legs using advanced tools and techniques? There's there's no big brother on these amputations either. So I, I'm wondering if that is something that we need to bring to the forefront as well and say, hey, there's bad seeds here, but mm, there's bad seeds here. And we need to some sort of an equal accountability system. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, you can you can be a doctor in the hospital that's doing things um, that are unscrupulous uh, and are abusing the system uh, for personal gain, uh, or um, are just not um, uh, meticulous enough or thoughtful enough in how they're doing the procedures. And that can happen anywhere. The problem is that in the outpatient setting, 
because they are the one person that's receiving a somewhat larger reimbursement, the magnitude of any kind of unscrupulous behavior is much larger in that population. So they're much more visible. And gotcha. there is a, a, and it's an issue because it's a, a, a um, problem for the future of OBLs. Kim, I think one thing that we've uh, started to do uh, over the last few years is we have a coalition of uh, OBLs and we have what is traditionally called an M&M conference every month, which is anybody who's trained in surgery knows what that is, where you look at complications, you look at outcomes, and you analyze the way you're doing things to get best outcomes for patients. And that's absent in a lot of OBLs, but there are a lot of OBLs that have come together, either whether they're tied together in a business fashion or whether they just are tied together out of a desire for best practices to uh, have these kind of conferences where you review with your peers uh, what you're doing and best practices. And I think, you know, that's what's always been used in hospital uh, settings to uh, get best outcomes. And I think being able to promote that and do that in your practice and in, with other practices is perhaps a way to go forward to get uh, these bad apples uh, out of the out of the box. And Paul, I, I would just applaud you all for doing that because I think one of the issues with OBLs is the lack of oversight and it's kind of, you know, the wild, wild west out there. Um, but, you know, let's, let's be honest. I mean, this, this reimbursement and this fee for service structure was it's Medicare or I'm sorry, CMS. I mean, they designed this and it's still, as we were talking about in the break, it's still cheaper for CMS to send a patient to an OBL for their same procedure uh, as it is, as it is in the hospital. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention too was, the primary care physicians, and we talked about this as well. I mean, they're taking at-risk contracts with insurances, meaning, Mr. Smith, you get, you know, they they pay the the seat the primary care physician. Let's say what twenty? I don't know. I'm making up a number. Twenty thousand dollars to care for that patient the whole year. Well, I mean, if I've got twenty thousand dollars and I can send my patient to Paul or Daniel, and it's going to cost six thousand dollars, or I send my patient to the hospital and it's going to cost fifteen thousand. Well, that delta is so much different, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do what's cheaper for me because I, as a PCP, as a primary care doctor, they get a cut of that money coming back to them if if they save their insurance company that money. So, I mean, these OBLs, ASCs, I think are they do a great thing. Again, it's just having better oversight uh, and management to some degree. And John, and what about- I was gonna say that's the you- whole strategy about the capitated care, right? Is to cut costs. I'm sorry, Kim. That's okay. So I'm curious about this new legislation. How is this going to help uh, maintain these OBLs and possibly have some sort of maybe bipartisan support in this? That's the only way you're going to get this through. Um, Tell us about this new legislation, what its goals are, and um, how likely it's going to come to fruition and, and pass. So the the new uh, legislation that's been sponsored by uh, Dr. Bil- and Congressman Bilirakis uh, and others uh, in a bipartisan way is designed to offset the labor costs uh, that uh, were um, increased uh, or rather uh, reimbursed at a higher rate for a lot of the primary care doctors. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier in the broadcast, this was uh, has to be budget neutral. And so those of us who are doing procedures in the office uh, got a hit to our reimbursement and decrease by another eight or 9%. So this new legislation that I would encourage all the listeners to support who know anybody who's had PADs, had an amputation, who has to travel, you know, long distances for care for their blood vessels. 
if they support the legislation is designed to decrease that cut so that, as uh, Daniel said, uh, we can stay in business and continue to provide this care. And Daniel, um, what are your thoughts on this new legislation? Yeah, so it, this uh, Without this bill, which is going to essentially uh, salvage our OBL, I mean, you know, there are are thinner margins in areas of increased overhead and also probably thinner margins with doctors who are uh, more interested in in making sure that the indications for their procedure are solid and that the uh, particular procedure that they're doing is correct. These margins get thinner and thinner and thinner, and then it gets to the point where we just can't uh, support our practice. And what this bill does is it actually allows us to stay in practice. And coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to find out what resistance they're facing and hurdles they have to overcome to get this through. So stay with us right here on the show. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. So, gentlemen, what are I mean? What do you, do you think this bill is going to pass, or I, maybe has it passed already, or, or is it uh, still being debated? Now, this is a bill that's uh, recently been introduced and is still very much in the process of Congress to try to get to a, a resolution and uh, to pass it. Uh, so it actually requires still a fair amount of lifting uh, to move this forward and, and gather further support uh, in the House uh, to that end. As Kim mentioned, of course, it's a bipartisan bill, which is great. Uh, but in the busy Congress, there's a lot to do. And we need to make sure that this bill stays front and center on the agenda. So this is H.R. 3674. And uh, if we can get uh, voices across the country to uh, speak to their congressmen and support it. Uh, that's how we're going to get this uh, across the finish line. Daniel, who who's resisting it? Who's button heads with you guys to to push this through? Who's who has the potential to prevent it from happening? And what is their power? You know, it's a, it's a little bit unclear. Um, I think that there's always a push to cut costs to save money, uh, combined with uh, the few bad actors and. Um, you know, a bad reputation for certain procedures because small numbers of people abuse them. That's the only thing that I can think. I mean, it's a little bit of a black box, what goes on in in the halls of Congress and how they come uh, to make these decisions. But essentially, I think that the bottom line is that our voice needs to be much larger. You know, we we are uh, we don't have the numbers um, of the people uh, that are the same as the people are doing these procedures in the hospital. And, um, you know, we, we don't quite have that same exposure. So it's just a, I think, a, a question of uh, hammering away at our legislators, uh, making sure that this bill stays front and center. Yes, it has been introduced, but it has not been passed. And, and as Paul says, they are, there's a, a lot of heavy lifting that needs to be done to get this across the finish line. And uh, that's a, a big job, but I think it's not insurmountable. Paul, do you, do you anticipate... Potential pushback from hospital systems. I mean, are, are, I get, let me ask you this: Are hospital systems are there? Are their payments getting cut? 
the hospital system's payments have gone up uh, as as recently as uh, 2022. So I, I would imagine that then it would be in the hospital system's best interest to keep patients there as opposed to Absolutely. going to the they just have the, 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 the loudest, the biggest lobby. It comes from the hospital and, and ours isn't, you know, as, as large as theirs. You know, it's, right. it's, it's really interesting though, as hospitals, even the nonprofit hospitals have to make enough money to stay open. And for the types of procedures we're doing in the OBLs, we have data that across uh, multiple hospital systems that show that actually they lose money doing these procedures. Yeah. Uh, that they are, you know, hospitals are designed for really sick people uh, who need big operations and big procedures. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about sick people, but need minimally invasive procedures. And so, you know, even though a lot of hospitals uh, come out against this because they don't understand it well, uh, in reality, it's in their best interest. But as uh, Daniel said, it's not clear who's against this. And I'm off, I often wonder if it's just inertia uh, that uh, keeps these things from happening. Yes, here's the, here's the deal. There are enough patients to go around. Supposedly, according to the Sage Group's Mary Yost, she's saying that there are more than 18 million people in the United States alone with peripheral artery disease. And we have yet to even, you know, get even a, a small percentage of that in there and get them treated soonest. So there are plenty of patients to go around for any for anyone and everyone already in hospitals. I have patients waiting months, even half a year, up to a year to get in for a vascular consult. I mean, it takes weeks to get them in for a surgery. Just last night, this one patient that has a wound can't even get in for three weeks to get a consult with her doctor. So it is the reality of what we're seeing right now with peripheral artery disease that we do need choice. We need timely, effective care for these people. So I, I hope for the best in that the government will come in and, and help maintain that choice for all of our patients. Yeah, Kim, I, I would say, you know, if you, were, if you were going to the hospital and had an infection and you were told that you couldn't get an antibiotic for three weeks, uh, you you wouldn't believe it. And and that's the problem we have. And some, sometimes the hospitals are so busy that we have patients with gangrene. We can't get into the hospital in a timely fashion. And, and that's our antibiotic. It's surgery or revascularization. And so it's mind boggling. Uh, but unfortunately, as you point out, it's a reality. And by having more sites of care uh, that are doing high quality work uh, that is being, you know, peer reviewed among their peers, uh, this is how we're going to drive those costs down. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. And this is going to be an ongoing uh, conversation, and we're going to just keep it flowing as we get updates. You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and take a stand against amputation. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. 
The heart of innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.